Shalom and welcome again to Secrets of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. We thank you for your time and joining us um, for what I hope to be, and I'm sure will be a very, very interesting and fascinating conversation. Just a word, if you'd like to um, drop us a note with some ideas or suggestions, please feel free to do so. Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. We'd appreciate it if you go and like the Facebook page, uh, the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page. Um, it would be greatly appreciated. We, we spend, as uh, we often do here, talking about individual stories and the fascinating aspect of individual stories and what makes people uh, choose certain things and moments in their life, pivotal moments, um, that in many ways change a person's life uh, without maybe them even knowing it at the moment. Uh, we are very, very pleased to welcome to today's edition of Seekers of Meeting Ed Skoback uh, from down here in southern New Jersey, who is going to, I hope, I'm sure, uh, bring us a very fascinating story. And, and so first of all, Ed, welcome, welcome to Seekers of Meeting. And I'm very happy that you joined us and I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. The easy first question, because it really opens the door to the rest of our conversation. Uh, who is William Skobeck? William Skobeck uh, was my father. Uh, he was a uh, Holocaust survivor. Uh, he was uh, 11 years old when uh, World War II started, and uh, uh, he survived the war uh, as an orphan, um, losing his entire family, um, probably about 100 people that were alive at that time, uh, at the beginning of World War II. Uh, and we know of four survivors uh, from our family at that time. And ultimately, uh, he, at the end, near the end of World War II, was um, smuggled into Italy and then ultimately made his way into the United States in 1949. So the journey, mm -hmm. the journey of your father mm -hmm. uh, is a journey of a film. And indeed, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a documentary is in the process of being produced uh, by some that we all know, uh, Steve Janoff, uh, on on your father. But that, and it's so hard, I, I think, for so many of us right now living in our contemporary world to understand what your father went through. Uh, you 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 know, was smuggled into Italy and eventually, but that process of surviving that process of surviving and you mentioned something i think that not untypical before we before we started the the taping how often did your dad sit down and talk to you about this uh, he never spoke to me about it um, never no when i was growing up uh my father never spoke about uh, anything that happened to him and uh we never on the other hand we never asked um yeah. it, it became like a a silent understanding, you know, we, he didn't talk about it. We didn't bring it up. Um, and I think that was very common. I grew up in, in the Bronx in uh, the late fifties, early sixties. And I would say majority of the kids I grew up with parents were Holocaust survivors and, uh, nobody knew their parents' story and none of us asked questions. Uh, and I think that was more of the norm than, uh, than an aberrancy. Um, they just didn't want to talk about it. So you've uncovered a slew of information. Yeah. How? Well, so how did you do that? 
Well, um, in I think things start to change in this country. Uh, speaking to other people whose parents are Holocaust survivors, uh, after the uh, TV series uh, Holocaust actually was viewed, um, that kind of opened the door a little bit and gave permission, I think, for a lot of people to start talking about it. I have a, uh, a brother who's almost 14 years younger than me, and his growing up was very different. Um, my father did mention things here and there. He never told the whole story, but he would occasionally say things uh, to my brother that he never said to me uh, because the difference in our age, uh, I was through my education out of the house already and I was living in California and I moved back to, United, to New Jersey in 19, late 1983. And then in uh, 1989, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine came down to visit me and he, my parents just happened to be there and he mentioned that he had just come back from Poland with his uh, in-laws, who were uh, Holocaust, both Holocaust survivors, and uh, they had just done a trip to Poland to their hometown, and they had just come back a week before the three of us were standing in front of my house talking. And my father just sort of top of his head said, uh, well, gee, if one of my kids wanted to go to Poland, uh, I would go too, which sort of shocked me because I didn't know anything about what happened to my father, and he had never expressed any desire to go back to Poland. and. Uh, and I kind of leaped on the opportunity and I said, well, you know, great, because I would love to go to Poland. And I started planning a trip in 1989. It was not easy to plan a trip to Poland because uh, there was not a lot of travel information, you know, readily available like, like there is now on the Internet. I actually had to go up to New York to the Polish consulate and get information to find out about bilingual drivers and finally to get information, enough information to plan a trip using paper maps and trying to figure out. And then about three months before we left, I told my father, I don't know where we're going. Uh, so I need to interview you about what happened. And that was really the first time. So about three months before we left, I interviewed my father in my house. And I thought that the interview was going to take about a half hour. And it took two and a half hours. Uh, and it was one of a couple of interviews that I did with him after we came back. But we ended up going to Poland in uh, June of 1990, which was an unusual time to go to Poland because the country was sort of half and half. It wasn't quite out of communism yet. Uh, it was still, um, but the Solidarity Party had uh, people in, in, in government. So it was moving away. It was moving away from communism. So we went and we went to Poland and visited his hometown, places where he hid out and ultimately Treblinka and Auschwitz. Um, and we kind of retraced his steps growing up uh, and on the run. And uh, we were able to you know, get that accomplished. And I filmed that, I bought a video camera just for that trip and interviewed him some more while we were in Poland. And it's really those materials that I've been working with uh, to try to get uh, this sort of final thing that Steve uh, Janoff was working with. Um, subsequently, I've interviewed uh, two other two of the other three survivors from my family, one who's in Israel and one who came to the United States in Detroit, and interviewed them. And we're trying to integrate that information into the final product as well. Ed, um, I want you to see if you can paint a picture for me. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you? I'm sure it was overwhelming for your dad. But what was it like for you as the son who walk through the camps well, knowing that 
knowing that, you know, by chance, your dad could have been sacrificed. What was, what were you feeling at that moment, those moments? Do you remember? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, I had a lot of concern about going with my father. So I was 35 when we went. My father was 62. I remember thinking at the time that he was an old man. Um, I'm older, than he, I'm older than he was when we went. Um, Be but, careful. but he, I was just concerned how he was holding up. Uh, I think I, I just, it was all so fresh to me, you know, hearing the stories that, you know, I think for me at the time it was more just, I was so curious about his life because I really knew nothing other than the fact that he didn't die. And, uh, and there was a picture in the house that my parents had with my father, my, his, his parents and his three sisters. I didn't even know their names. I, I, you know, I didn't know. So I, I didn't know anything. And so for me, it was just hearing this story unfold, getting additional information while we were going. For me, the most uh, moving time was when we were in Treblinka, uh, because when we went to Treblinka, it was not easy to get to. The roads were out. The, the roads were terrible. We had a driver. And when we got there, as opposed to an experience, I don't know if you've ever been to Auschwitz, but at Auschwitz, you kind of feel like you're on a movie set. You know, there's buildings, you've seen it in movies, and there's tons of tourist buses, and there are people. When we were at, at Treblinka, we were the only two people there. Uh, and uh, I found that um, extremely uh, moving. It was quiet as quiet could be. You just hear birds and crickets and the two of us walking through and Treblinka, there's nothing there. It's just uh, headstones and it's a field, probably about two or three football fields large, just full of headstones. And each headstone is uh, with the name of a village or a city where Jews perished. And uh, we ultimately were able to find the town that my father's family was from. And uh, we said Kaddish and other prayers there and, and for me it was just a sense of uh, it was like saying it was like going to a funeral for the first time with my father for his family and i think that's the reason fundamentally why he went and he would go through such a painful experience was and he kept on saying this over and over again that he never had time while he was there to do anything because he was just trying to stay alive and when he left poland at 16 he didn't know he was never coming back. He didn't know. He just knew he was getting the heck out of Poland because it wasn't safe. And he, um, and I think he regretted that, that he never got to say Kaddish for his family at the site where they died. Um, ultimately, we found out they all died at Treblinka. Um, we went to both Auschwitz and Treblinka because we didn't know at that time which place they, they died. In. And the name of the town? What was the name of your, so your my ancestor? Father, my father was, uh, grew up in Volomine. Um, his parent, his parents moved there a few years before he, uh, before he was born. But my entire family, both on my father's side and my mother's side, was from a town of Australia, uh, Poland, which is, uh, further north. Tell me about your mom and all of this. Uh, so my mother was, a, a first generation American. Um, her, uh, mother, her, her father came here in 1913. Uh, the original plan was to get my mother, grandmother over here right away, but World War II, World War One intervened and she didn't come until 1920. Uh, two of her children died and 
during World War One. She came here with two two daughter a daughter and a son. Son died soon after coming here, and and then my grandmother had two more children, one of which was my mother, um, and uh, uh, she uh, met my dad when she was nineteen, and my father oh. at the time was twenty one, and they got married pretty quickly, um, and uh, and I was born in nineteen fifty five. I have an older brother who was born in '53, so I think a lot, a lot of the Holocaust survivors they got busy making families. Well, I, yeah, that stands to reason, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Um, and wh- what did your dad do here in the United States once he got settled in the states? Uh, so he um, started a small business uh, making uh, foam rubber for uh, for. Uh, couches for upholsters who needed foam rubber for couches and chairs. And then ultimately he went into the family business that my grandfather uh, had, which was real estate management. And, and he did that uh, till he died. My father worked pretty much till he died. The, you, you say he went to Italy. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. What, tell me about that. And, and, I have a note that, that he wanted to go to Palestine, yeah. but didn't. So talk uh, to me. About yeah. That. So the thing about my, what my father didn't know is because he was the youngest child. He was born in 1928 that, um, he didn't know he had an aunt that came to the United States in, in 1920. And so he was an oblivious to the fact that he had family in the United States. When the war started, he was 11. And then, you know, they didn't talk about family tree, you know, the seven years they were just trying to stay alive. So. He didn't know about having family in the United States, but he had a friend, he had a cousin who uh, was very Zionist and his father was very religious, not Zionist, and they clashed a lot. And his cousin uh, fled his home and made his way to Israel in 1938. And my father used to play with him and he was aware that uh, he had a cousin that was in Israel in 1938. So uh, while the war was going on, the Palestinian Brigade uh, was uh, smuggling Jews from Poland into Italy. And my father and a, his cousin, the two of them found out about it. And they snuck across the border to Czechoslovakia. They took trains, um, ultimately made, made their way to Salzburg, Austria. And then there, the, the Palestinian Brigade put them in trucks and they went over the Alps into northern Italy. Uh, the war was still going on when that was happening. And then ultimately he joined a, uh, Irgun Kibbutz and made his way down to, um, the sort of the heel of the boot of Italy where they started smuggling Jews into Israel. And, uh, he would send them with money <laughs> and say, put an ad in the paper in Israel. I'm looking for, uh, a cousin, Zev Nadborni. Um, and, and Wolf Skrobach is alive and living in, in, in Italy. Well, what he didn't know was there were other relatives in Israel who had gotten to Israel anywhere between like 1900 and 1930 um, and were living there. And they were in touch with his aunt in the United States. And he didn't know any of these people existed, and but they knew. And so while he was in a DP camp in Italy, he started getting mail and packages, you know, people in Israel saying, come to Israel, people in the United States saying, come to the United States. Uh, ultimately, he he ended up deciding to come to the United States. And uh, again, this the the thing that's so fascinating about these stories is like you make a choice. Yeah. Uh, I, very few of us, I think, can imagine 
what it was like for your dad sitting in that DP camp in Italy, being in many ways pulled between Palestine, United States, um, and in that one yeah. position, you know, that one choice, everything changes. Yeah. So he had gotten a lot of information from the people that they smuggled into Israel. And remember that my, my father was Irgun. Uh, which was a minority uh, party in Israel. Uh, he was not Sahal. And uh, the people started sending letters back that they smuggled in saying, you may want to reconsider coming to Israel. Uh, number one, there's going to be a war. Uh, number two, a lot of us are getting malaria. And uh, <laughs> number three is that we're not being treated particularly well by the Sahal uh, people in Israel. And I think that really disillusioned my father to the whole thing that, that after all that, that the infighting between Jews going to Israel and, uh, that really bothered him. And I think that strongly influenced his decision to come to the United States. From, from just some of the notes that were sent, your dad had what it seems to be a number of very, very close calls. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and as he made his way in this unbelievable journey, there's one about this, the thing, uh, and hands sticking out. Um, can you recall well, that? So he, what happened was, so my father, when he was in the ghetto, the, um, Bolomin ghetto was being liquidated in the fall of 42. And there had just been a typhoid epidemic that went through Bolomin. And it killed people on both sides, the Jews and non-Jews in Bolomin. And my grandfather was actually a wealthy man in Bolomin. Uh, and uh, he had connections with the mayor and business people. And they, he was able to acquire two birth certificates, one for his older sister and one for my father. Uh, his older sister immediately left the, uh, the, the ghetto and went to Warsaw. My father stayed with the family and using this paper, he kind of moved them out of the ghetto um, one by one by train uh, to another part of Poland, closer where they originally came from. Uh, and then him and his father stayed outside of the ghetto and would sneak food into the ghetto that the, his mother and sisters were in uh, to keep them going. Um, and then essentially they were all rounded up and my father escaped. And, uh, he ended up having um, to um, uh, the last year and a half to stay um, on a farm in a very rural area in, Pol in, in northern Poland. And he, the farmer gave him permission to come back and see his family because he didn't know my father was Jewish. And on his way back to see his sister, they had made, made a meeting time. Um, he was on a train station. And uh, a train pulled in and uh, my father was sitting there and there was a, a train full of cattle cars, which were probably heading to Treblinka, given the train line it was on. And uh, there was a hand sticking out with like a cup. Uh, and um, there was a woman saying, Vassar, Vassar. And uh, the, guard, the guard opened the door and put his bayonet on his rifle and just started stabbing people that were packed up to the door. And uh, my father became terrified because he had never seen this and he was unaware of what was going on. He didn't know the gas chambers and the concentration camps. He was just in hiding. So uh, he was afraid that his reaction to what was going on might give him away. And, uh, and he 
ultimately made his way out of the station. Um, most of my father's close calls were just, um, you know, being in the wrong place at, at the wrong time. Um, you know, he uh, he was on this farm and they would smuggle and uh, um, they would help people who were smuggling get across the border. And because uh, they were close to the border, my father knew how to move people from one side to the other. And one time, two of the people from his hometown happened to be the people doing the smuggling. And he was very afraid he was going to be recognized. And um, and so he managed to keep his back to them the whole time. And then one time he came back to visit his sister, the same trip when he went to visit his sister. He was recognized by one of the uh, uh, children he used to play with. And uh, the uh, kid tried to extort him, you know, for money uh, or he was going to turn him in. And my father essentially uh, beat him unconscious with a rock <laughs> and fled um, and never came back, uh, never saw his sister again uh, after that one visit. Um, and then there were close calls because after the Russians liberated uh, the, um, the, the Poles, um, the Poles were killing Jews uh, after the war. You know, they were liberated. And my uh, his his uh, uncle uh, was murdered by Poles, and he uh, uh, just one day before he came to visit him, um, had he been there a day earlier, he would have been killed with his uncle. Um, and uh, he, he, when he was trying to make his way back to his hometown, he had to get behind Russian vans. And um, as the Russians were moving, he was staying behind them. But um, he was picked up by Russians because there there was this kid following their movements and uh, they thought he might be a spy. Uh, and so they arrested him. And uh, he just got lucky that there was a Jewish captain in that particular unit. And uh, he kept on telling these people that he's Jewish, that he wouldn't be spying for the, for the Germans. And uh, this Jewish captain came in and, and you know said, prove that you're Jewish. And he gave him a sitter. And he said, you know what this is? My father said, yes, it's a sitter. And uh, he says, you know how to daven? My father said, sure. And he had him daven. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you're Jewish. <laughs> so he wrote him a paper saying that any Russian convoys, uh, please, you know, provide this person with assistance. And my father would hitchhike on Russian military convoys while he was, you know, trying to find his family as the war was winding down. Um, I was told to ask you also about a, um, a, a, a story with your dad in one of those moments uh, of choice. Again, yeah. one of these choice moments with uh, with him breaking into a house to exact revenge. Well, and yeah, well, so this this uh, when my father finally came back to his hometown when the Russians liberated everything, um, he got a gun from one of the Russians and um, told them that he was this kid who tried to extort him. He was, you know, he wanted to, um, uh, to, to scare him. <laughs> and so they gave him a gun and uh, he went back to his hometown and uh, he went to the house where this uh, uh, kid lived, uh, who was also about 16 at the time. And uh, he waited for him with his mother and uh, with the boy's mother and then the boy came in my father pulled out the gun and um uh but he uh he made the the kid tell his mother what he had done 
that he had tried to extort him um, and was going to turn him in. Um, and the mother was begging my father not to kill him. And my father didn't. And uh, he uh, returned back to the Russians uh, where he got the gun and gave them the gun back. Did your dad tell you that story? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it. He didn't tell it to me um, before we went. He told it to me uh, when I interviewed him a second time after we came back. When, you know, the first interview was more generated by me, like questions that I had. I, I didn't know enough to ask, like, secondary questions. When we were in Poland, more things started hitting his head, and he would mention things, and I wrote them down, and, uh, and I interviewed him a second time. And a lot of this sort of more detail of things that happened uh, came out because of, of the second interview. I, I want, and, and thank you very much for sharing. It's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, it really, these are unbelievable stories. And this leads me to I, a question because these stories, I don't know how long these stories are going to last. Mm -hmm. Um, this is being posted in, in the end of May, uh, about a month ago in the New York Times. There was this very, very interesting op-ed, lead editorial in the New York Times, um, called A New Generation of Holocaust Storytellers. And it really was the theme, which is, look, who's going to keep these stories alive? And I know you're very, very involved with this. Um, how do we keep these stories alive so that they mean something as time goes on and on and on and on? And, and, and with with and and you have this thing now that it's driving so many of us crazy. You have school districts who are banning books that that reflect and talk. How do you, as a child of a Holocaust survivor who's walked this walk with your dad, who's walked through Treblinka with your, how do you how do you understand this? Well, I think uh, you have to engage uh, people through their areas of interest. You know, I think if you just try to force this stuff uh, on people, they're, they're going to lose interest very quickly because to them, again, this happened so long ago. Um, I think in the context of that, there seems to be an unending series of genocides in the, on the planet uh, in, during my lifetime, that that I think that's the approach you have to go through that and not to have a feeling of that. This is a more, although to me it's more important because it's my family, but I think you have to approach it more from that. It genocide is the problem. And, you know, I'm going to give you an example of genocide because this is what I'm familiar with, but I think you have to link it to all the genocides that have been going on and will always unfortunately provide some current context to uh, that seem relevant to uh, a younger generation. It's a tremendous challenge. I mean, uh, you know, history is, well, nobody teaches history anymore. So it, it's, it's, that's part of the problem. We've lost the ability to understand that we're part of something greater than ourselves. And this is, these are, it's why these stories are so powerfully important to keep alive. Uh, I mean, I worried about this from a you know young age because I didn't know the story, and right. uh, and once I became aware of the story, it was important for me. And I, and 
and my entire family and my extended family because they didn't know the story either. And they're all now very aware of it because I interviewed my father and we filmed it and they've had something to look at for a while now. But, you know, as I've gotten older, it's become more important to me that people who never knew my father know his story. And, and that's why I'm trying to put together something that's a little bit more relevant and easier to assimilate for my granddaughter and her generation. How old are your grandchildren? I have one granddaughter. She's five. And, um, and so when I, when I'm redoing all this material, um, I think of her as the target audience. uh, Right. She is, she is, she is. So when she sees this, when she's 12 and 13 or 22 and Mm -hmm. perhaps taking a class in at a university on, you know, the history of World War II, you think she'll be able to pull this video out? The intent, yeah, that's the intent is we're going to put it online and uh, do it a series of chapters that are small, short. Um, and uh, so if she wants to know what my father's life was like in Poland before World War II, she'll be able to do that. If she wanted to know his experiences during the war early on in the ghetto, um, when he was in the ghetto for two years, she could get that information. She Then we're going to try to have it sort of his period of being liberated um and then his trip to italy and ultimately what it was like to come to the united states and so it's going to be more like a chapter book and uh she'll be able to access it as much or as little as she wants but it will be there in smaller uh sort of time intervals so uh that it's not going to be one overwhelming you know like a documentary no no ed You've done your, your family and your father well, and um, he lives through you and these stories, which uh, is true part of Jewish concept of memory. So mm-hmm. um, I thank you for your time and your willingness to share some of the stories about your dad and your family, and I uh, wish you just continued success and most of all, health. Well, um, thank you very much, and I appreciate, I appreciate you having it. me on. No, thank you very much. It's, it's our honor, so thank okay. you. To all of you, thank you very, very much again for joining us on today's edition of The Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. We appreciate your time. Again, if you'd like to contact us, just email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to continue to support us, again, go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Click on the donate button and just follow the prompts. Uh, We do appreciate this, and we want to thank our producer, Steve Lubetkin, because these podcasts are recorded at the studios of Lubetkin Media Companies here in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Again, until we see each other again on our next edition, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. In the meantime, stay safe, everyone. Stay healthy. And most of all, be kind to one another. Tudah Shalom.